Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast. Greetings, Seekers, and uh, hilarious. Welcome to Ken Campbell, the Seekers podcast, hosted by me, Daisy Campbell, Ken's daughter, and David Bramwell. Daisy, what have you got for us in this episode? So this is the History of Comedy, Part 1 Ventriloquism, which is the full title of the show, and this is Part 1 of that show. Now, one of the, one of the slight problems we have with, with this recording is that that it's quite a visual show because he's referencing some of the ventriloquist dolls and, and particularly one which was a miniature version of his head, uh, which, you want to tell the story? You, you were telling me earlier on about what happened to this and I, I never knew. Well, actually, there's two different heads. So, um, so there was, there's one little head, which is the Frank stick that he refers to in the first half, which looks quite like him. It's a little baldy guy with big eyebrows, but quite small, like the size of a fist, the head is, and it just exists on a stick. Um, so that's what he's talking about in the uh, the first half. If the listeners don't know the Nina Conti documentary, Her Master's Voice, then we highly recommend that they go highly and watch that because it's extraordinary. That, yeah. And within that documentary, Nina Nina inherits the all of his uh, ventriloquist Yeah, dolls, no, it was right? very clear in his will. Everything to do with ventriloquism um, was to go to Nina. And um, at the end of the documentary, she gives away the... The, the large, the large... The large head, head. That, that looks like Ken, you know. Um, yeah, there was this, um, there, this, this rather extraordinary, beautiful, highly mechanised um, head that really do, does look like Ken. And at the end of the documentary, she gives this extraordinary head to this young, budding ventriloquist who goes on to become one of the finalists in America's Got Talent using the very same head, the Ken head. They're nearly bankrupted buying him buying that thing. Um, so that's, a, yeah, that's a, what the weird, wonderful ripples of this stuff, yeah. Okay, so this is A History of Comedy Part 1, Part 1. I think you should say The History of Comedy Part, part 1, Ventriloquism Part 1. <laughs> so this is A History of Comedy Part 1, Ventriloquism Part one. Yes. Ye hats tell of a ghost dog that runs at the head of the pack. When the long winter nights come on and the wolves follow their meat into the lower valleys, he may be seen running at the head of the pack through the pale moonlight or glimmering borealis, leaping gigantic above his fellows, his great throat a bellow, as he sings a song of the younger world, which is the song of the pack. And then, that's the last paragraph of Jack London's Call of the Wild. Why have I recited it? I'll tell you. Because these are the stars of a thing I'm working on at the moment. Indicating my fine dogs. Which is a perambulatory, ventriloquial, canine production of Jack London's Call of the Wild. <laughs> Let me just uh, hit you up there. He's very good, Maxine. Mr. Chins, Mr. Chins I'm just going to hit you up here. You get to see the nice lady in a moment. That's what he's looking forward to. First of all, I just want to like to introduce you to the mother of these two. This is uh, uh, Gertie. She's a <clears throat> quite, a fine, quite a fine performer, but she's better out on the marshes, Walthamstow Marsh, where I'm planning this uh, production. <laughs> she's a sensitive actress. She's kind of into sadness. <clears throat> she loves balls, for example. <clears throat> but what she really wants to do with a treasured ball is to take it to just outside the rowing club and let it roll down the slope and into the River Lee and away and be sad. <laughs> this is Gertie. She's, she's what you call of the ferine strain. Not exactly feral, but ferine. And she plays the wolf in the production, amongst other things. <laughs> Come on, Jessica. This here is Mr Chins, magnificent-looking animal, and thus, um, due to his looks, has got the part of uh, Buck the Judge's dog. And then you know the story of Call of the Wild. It's about how Buck the Judge's dog gets kidnapped when in the 1900s and then ta taken from California out to the Arctic to become a sledge animal. And uh, he gets fucked off with it and joins the wolves. <laughs> anyway, he's the, um, he's, the, he's the most similar in, in looks and a lovely dog. And, uh, 
Now, with Jessica, that the modicum of real talent probably lies with this guy, um, which is Maxi. He, um, I'll come to it in a moment, but he actually knows a, a fragment of the Song of the Younger World, as mentioned in Call of the Wild. But he's got a, another little thing he wants to show you. Here you are, Jessica. The Younger World. What do you got to remember when uh, Jack London was writing this thing? He just read Darwin. And at the, la at the, last, at the last line is, uh, and he sings a song of the younger world, which is the song of the pack. What London's talking about there by younger world is a world that precedes the wolf, right? It's an incredible work, I think, The Call of the Wild, because it kind of makes you nostalgic for a time before man. Anyway, sings a song. Yeah, harness, okay. We wanted to show you how we cope with the sledging scenes in this production. Maxie, <laughs> 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 right, uh, this is um, a sack of dog cart from uh, Norway here. I haven't got the three of them on it, because you've got three of them on it. Man, you've got to hold on to your hat. Okay, are you ready now? There's a nice lady. Make for the nice lady there. Okay, gee, ha, mark it away. And the dogs? dog cart across the stage. Don't worry about the dogs. They might come on again at the end. But um, they have a wonderful, wonderful evening with um, the lovely Jessica. At, at the moment in the uh, production, I, uh, I ventriloquise the thoughts and dialogue of the dogs. <laughs> at the end of it, it's quite... At the end of the production, I will be doing a, a demonstration of ubiquitaricism. <laughs> which is one of the variants of ventriloquism. Ubiquitaricism is where you attempt to make your voice come from everywhere. You know, not from like a little dummy, but from the everywhere. And there's a, there's a wonderful part on Walthamstone Marsh is, is the railway bridge that goes over. And one of the arches there, uh, I can do it, as I go... The hats tell of a ghost dog that runs at the head of the pack. The thoughts and the dialogue of the dogs, I naturally, I, I, I ventriloquise at the moment. But I have a dream that they may be able to master just a few lines themselves. <laughs> so it's subsequent to last year, at last year's um, World Ventriloquism conference in Kentucky, I acquired this little character. <laughs> it was in the, uh, in the dealer's room. Now showing a wooden head on a stick that looks rather like me. It's quite an unusual figure, this. Um, uh, for one reason, note, note that the um, eyes don't cross on it. Usually with, um, they're called these things, that, well, some people call them dummies. Be very careful about doing that in America. They get upset, some of them, right? You call them ventriloquial figures or knee pals, then you're <laughs> So, to be able to say knee pal, you know. <laughs> anyway, yeah, knee pal, yeah, knee pal. Um, <laughs> notice the eyes don't cross. Usually on ventriloquial figures, the eyes will cross. That's so that when you when band them around, it looks like they're looking at you. Not this guy, look. He's kind of introspective. He's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> not seeing it at all. Also, it's finished. See what I mean? It's not actually what you could put it in a body, but it's not waiting for a body. And um, this, this was carved, evidently, by the late Frank Coates. Uh, nothing eerie about this. It was shortly before he became late. He did it. <laughs> but um, Frank, having snuffed it, evidently what happened was his accountant went into his garage and kind of seemed to have helped himself to anything that was knocking about there. And he was manning the dealer's table, selling off um, the remnants of Frank Coates' collection. And I, I said to the accountant, what, what actually, what is this? And he said... It's a shaman stick. <laughs> I said, wow, a shaman stick. Right, I said, I said did, um, did Frank have dogs? He said, yeah, he had an old dog that died of grief shortly after Frank did. <laughs> right, anyway, the thing seems to want me to buy it for some reason. And I am... Um, <laughs> the thing is, I've seen one of these things before. This was... Um, it was about ten years ago. When I was touring around with the science fiction author Brian Aldiss, 
and we were reading bits and pieces of Brian's uh, science fictional stuff to the to the fans and um, when we were in Nottinghamshire, we passed this rather nice-looking pub in the hillside out of the way. Oh, we'd go back there after we'd done a show, which we did. In there was an old miner, a retired miner, and he had one of these things. It wasn't quite like this, because his looked like him. <laughs> I, I, I said to the miner, I said, I said, I said what, is, what is that? And the miner said, well, you see, I'm a shy man. <laughs> and I just thought he was, you know, like telling me that he was a very shy person, but he found that he could cope if he had one of these. And, um, <laughs> anyway, so Nottinghamshire shy man also had with him a dog. It was um, a big old dog. I think it may once have been a Labrador. And the, the name of the beast was uh, Dustbin, or he pronounced it Dustbin. And he started to address the dog through his shy man stick. And he was going, So, Duskin, will you be telling us a story tonight, Duskin? Will you be telling us a story? Is it a story you'll be getting thrown at, Duskin? <laughs> that kind of stuff went on for some time all day. In fact, it went on for about an hour. It was quite amusing to begin with. I think Brian and I decided to walk around the place a bit. And, um, <laughs> but then I, I spotted that the dog had now rolled over on its stomach and the miner was now digging into his, 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 the dog's stomach with his boots. He was going, so will it be a story tonight, Duskin? Will you getting a story tonight from your Duskin? Like that. And of a sudden, the dog... <laughs> story this I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, um, you know like, like when a, a Welsh relative has had a stroke or... <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you can kind of understand it as well as that. Well, maybe it's a bit like someone else's Welsh relative had had a stroke but you can, you can kind of follow it. Well, he was talking about Brian, what do you think of that? And he started saying, it's extraordinary. Because it seemed to me he was handling at least three different story threads there. He said, it's almost perfect three-act structure as well. <laughs> Um, in, um, in Kentucky, I came, I came back very inspired. I got in, inspired to be, now, Britain's answer to William Shakespeare Burger. William Shakespeare <laughs> Burger is pictured there in the centre, a little kind of banner thing here. William, Sha William Shakespeare Burger. William Shakespeare Burger was the son of Geezer Burger, a German-American actor. Talking, and he was born in the 1800s, late 1800s. As a lad, he showed a lot of promise as a ventriloquist. But then he, uh, he joined the Cincinnati Tile Works. He did very well there. He rose to be president. But then after 39 years, when he retired, he decided to get back to ventriloquism. And um, he, he reckoned he was a bit old to be a pro now, a bit rusty. But he wrote to every ventriloquist in the world, you know, and begged for memorabilia, posters, all that kind of stuff. And he started to buy ventriloquial figures, or dummies, we'll call them dummies tonight. But it was, we're here, aren't we? Don't care. And um, he, uh, he started to collect dummies, and um, he got very well known on the ventriloquial circuit, and people were always calling in if they were in uh, and around uh, Cincinnati, Kentucky way. They would call in and see William Shakespeare Burger. And then, and then a few started to do in their wills started to leave their dummies to William Shakespeare Burger. William Shakespeare Burger lived to be 99 and he outlived all his children and he left his money in trust that his house should be Vent Haven. That this is where all dummies may go and rest. And the, the collection now is incredible. Uh, several hundred uh, are there at Ben Haven, and that's why they hold the um, ventriloquism conference in Kentucky. It's not held in his house. It's, uh, there was hundreds, five hundred people, five hundred ventriloquists at the, at the do. In Ben Haven, I, I got to know a, a bit more. So some stuff I was hazy about. So I used to know quite a lot about ventriloquism. In fact, I mean, like, like um, in 1961, I did a brilliant, a brilliant ventriloquial show. But then I, um, I haven't had anything to do with it ever since, really, or until now. Anyway, Ben Haven, I came across some little bits of information. There's a picture, picture there of um, Herbert Dexter, that's the geezer in the middle, Herbert Dexter and his, um, 
Neve, I had a big Neve pal, that bit. Uh, Charlie, <laughs> and that's Sally Osman, the showgirl Sally Osman that um, he was married to until she sued for divorce. And she was quite happy with her husband, Herbert, Herbert Dexter. He was fine. It was Charlie. <laughs> Charlie apparently was fearfully rude and, and also had been given a much bigger wardrobe budget than she had. <laughs> Moving along there, the man is very famous. Famous and face is still famous anyway in the States. And that's um, Paul Winchell, known there as Winch, and his pal Jerry Mahoney. Now they had. Um, Oh, a huge hit in the, in the very early 50s with um, the Paul Winchell, Jerry Mahoney show on television there. Uh, um, and uh, the early 50s. And then he was getting on a bit, uh, Paul Winchell, in the 70s. But as luck seemed to have it, it was the time of video. And he, he um, owned the rights and he owned the master tapes, which were held by KTTV. And he asked for them so that they, you know, he'd make videos of them. But they refused to give them to him. And he kept asking and wrote a, wrote a lawyer's letter or two. And KTT, KTTV got so pissed off, they destroyed the master tape. They erased it. It now went into litigation and for 17 years. And then as a very old man, Paul Winchell got his day in court. And nobody knew quite what to make of this shambling old figure. He'd um, taught himself ventriloquism as a lad when he had polio. He taught it himself in a hospital flat. His legs are really gone now. And everything hobbled into the court. And he, but then he opened a box and he pulled out Jerry Mahoney. <laughs> and Jerry Mahoney hadn't aged at all. <laughs> and Jerry Mahoney kind of looked, you know, looked around, you know, like you would if you'd been in a box for 10 years. <laughs> and Jerry Mahoney spotted a relative of his in court which was the judge's wooden gavel. Ah. <laughs> and suddenly the audience knew what this case was about. What KTTV had done was they had erased their childhoods. And this was declared the grossest act of cultural vandalism in American history. And uh, Paul Winchell and Jerry Mahoney were awarded $14.8 million dollars so they didn't work for a couple of bob for the last three months of Paul Winchell. <laughs> Jerry Mahoney is part of the Hall of Fame in, in Van Haven. Let's move over there. I'd like this, um, it, I, think, I think, Britain, you've got, you've got to start to know who this guy was. This is Edgar Bergen. And in the ventriloquist world, he was the biggest thing we've had this century. Not that he was actually very good at that. At not moving his lips. He was not hopeless at that, but he was incredible at making Charlie McCarthy alive. And Charlie McCarthy, for 56 years, like just William in a way, do you know what I mean? Is the same age for Americans through 56 years. When it's the war, he joins up. You know, like, like that. He goes through everything. Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. I was reading about the last performance of Edgar Bergen. I think it was in 1976 in Caesar's Palace, Las Vegas. And <clears throat> it was kind of like during that show that Edgar Bergen decided that this was his last one. And at the end of it, he said to the assembly, he said, well, ladies and gentlemen, you know this, I suppose a time comes when things have to be put away. He said, oh, that was my last show. And glad it was, uh, enjoyed it so much. It's now time for me to pack away my jokes and my friends, I think, and see, see what else is uh, going for me out in the world now. And he went back to the hotel in Las Vegas and died in bed. In one of the reports it says that he died alone in his bed, but of course the ventriloquist, no, that wasn't so. He died in bed with those he loved the most. He died in bed with Charlie McCarthy, Mortimer Snurd and Effie Clinker. <laughs> Over there, look, there's um, a head. You see that? It, that is just, is actually all it looks like when you're in there is a head on a stick, a real head on a stick. And it's the reason some sensitive people don't go a second time to Vent Haven. <laughs> it's uh, nowhere it's the Sammy or the Lydia Dreams head. The Lydia Dreams act was a British act in uh, about 1902. And it used to begin with a bit of, bit of um, cinema. It was a road accident uh, footage. 
and then you cut to live action. And in the bed was the, uh, you're treated to the last six or seven minutes of the life of the road accident victim, as, as by um, Nurse Lydia Dream. Right? And there's a kill at the end, because you wouldn't have realised that the, uh, the figure dying in the bed was in fact a ventriloquial figure. Rather, you would have had no idea that Nurse Lydia Dream was played by this geezer, Walter Lambert. Anyway, underneath, it's kind of, you know, it's got some details about all these things in Vent Haven, and underneath that <laughs> little capture which says, human teeth. <laughs> I tell you, it looks like human eyes as well. It doesn't look like human eyes, they look too alive to be human eyes. <laughs> anyway, there's just a bit of, bit of a snag. I came to realise this idea that I'd be Britain's answer to William Shakespeare Burger. Sadly, we kind of lost the art in Britain. Like, I mean, they're amassing, what, 500? 500 turn up at their conference. And, yeah, I don't know, would we get, would we get five? Would we get two? I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. So, uh, part of my idea in uh, doing this little evening is, is to actually encourage, you know, encourage people to get off the arm. And do, I was sitting next to a 90-year-old man at the conference, and I said to him, how long have you been doing this? He said, I haven't, I, I said, I haven't started yet, but I've always fancied it. <laughs> Because I want, I want to start the ball rolling with people leaving these things to me in their wills. And, um, <laughs> I can tell you how I, I mean, to the extent I did, got into ventriloquism, and that was, that was at school. I, mean, we, I, had, I, had, I had the luck to be um, at school with these two guys, um, the Plashwits. We had two Plashwits, we used to call them the greater and the lesser Plashwit. <laughs> my, my particular mate was uh, Neville, Neville, the, the, um, the lesser Plashwit, and they were the sons of archaeological, anthropological espionage parents. And they'd uh, been brought up in Borneo and Malakula, Island Malakula in the, in the South Pacific. And um, that, that I to tell you something about their upbringing. Attack it carefully and obliquely. You see this picture? Um, this picture is called Old Longings. It speaks of something which is so rarely spoken about, and I'm going to speak about it tonight, right? <coughs> this is the practice of having a nurse dog for your child. What I mean is your very young child, you know, from a baby. You don't need nappies and all that stuff. Not if you've got one of these large, soft mouth dogs. Uh. They've got clean <laughs> you know, with, um, with, with enthusiasm. <laughs> both the, uh, both the Blash Whip boys, they, they, don't, they don't nurse, they don't nurse pigs, apparently, out of <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember being, uh, when I was round at their house, they got this little sister. She was less than one year old at that time, little Nina. I remember seeing her little legs in the air as she's being, uh, Licked, slopped out, and roughed by the young and marvellous large Newfoundland dog they had called uh, Joey, you know? Complete clean out of the truck end and Cupid's Christ stuff. I mentioned it to my mother. <laughs> she didn't look a bit shocked. She said, Well, you remember Tim, don't you? <laughs> It can lead to odd behaviour in later life. <laughs> For example, um, Nina, little Nina Blasher, as she grew up, when she was uh, 20, she got done by the RSPCA for debauching dogs. And uh, shortly after that, she uh, left the country, was off to Australia, where she joined the dingo chapter of the Radical Dyke Bikers. <laughs> particularly to Labrador, where she was to help in the, with the rehabilitation of Eskimo gas and glue sniffers. Uh, going from gig of mercy to gig of mercy, courtesy of a team of 19 Inuit dogs pulling her sledge. These Inuit dogs, man, they are... Well, I mean, the reason they have huskies and malamutes is because they're, I mean, these Inuit dogs, they're kind of, they're kind of a breed that precedes the wolf, you know, and um, in the, in the, uh, in the summer, what I do with the Inuit dogs is, I know what you you put them on an uninhabited island for the summer, and um, there was a case a couple of years ago where 
some visitors or something. They, they boated out to one of these uninhabited islands to pick berries. And they did pick quite an amount of berries until the dogs spotted them and wandered over and ate them. <laughs> not, not the berries. <laughs> the, uh, polar bears you knew, did you? Polar bears hitch lifts on icebergs. What they do is they, they ride along the mainland on icebergs, you know what I mean, out, out, out to sea. They see a little place they, they fancy and they swim in. And there was a case where a polar bear went into the little town of Nain in Labrador. And it was a hell of a pest, this polar bear. It was, um, it, it was frightening old Eskimo ladies when they came out of the bingo. And the problem is you can't just shoot them these days, you know, because of Bridget Bardo. And, uh, <laughs> secret us, I mean. We had to have a secret language. Luckily, the Plashwitz spoke pidgin. They spoke the Melanesian pidgin of the South Sea Islands, and it's a very simple language, and it only takes an afternoon to learn it. It's got no grammar or anything, and that was fine for us. That was our secret language. Go, go like this, for example. Go, ah, you, me, too, fella. Ah, go, puffum, one, woody, me, guy. Long, long, narrow side, long, will, will house. Yeah, I mean, um, how about you and I go and have, have a wood barn behind the bike shed? And this is it, but anyway, now, now this is how I got into ventriloquism, you see, because Neville, uh, Neville was the sort of guy you listened to. I mean, man, his, um, his rite of passage into manhood. Uh, I mean, I'd heard, I'd heard the phrase rite of passage into manhood. I just thought it was um, a kind of, you know, flowery way of saying, you know, up to a certain point in your, your life you couldn't achieve spermatozoons and then, well, you could. And uh, I wasn't aware that, that, that actually sometimes people kind of organise some kind of do regarding it. Anyway, this was Neville Blashwitz too, and we became aware of it on a cross-country run, because there was a whole bunch of us uh, who, who didn't hold with cross-country running at all, but you had, you had to begin it, otherwise you'd have been uh, killed by the staff. But, it, <laughs> but you had to begin it, but then you could hide in bushes or in ditches and that sort of keen mass got by. And, come. And, um, and normally Neville would have been with us, but he wasn't on this occasion. It turned out it was due to his rite of passage into manhood. And uh, anyway, when, and here comes Neville. Here comes Neville. He's puffed around. He's gone around the whole four miles. And, and he's got his mouth in a curious way. And as he passed us, we noticed something we'd not noticed before, that he'd got these ribbons, ribbons of stud marks down the backs of his legs, you know? Those are Moby Brown stud marks, all part of his rite of passage into manhood. What he'd been doing was he'd been keeping a mouse alive for, for six months by feeding it nothing except bits of himself. And now he was nearing his right at the final, the climax, I suppose, of his rite of passage, and he'd now cared for that little animal in his mouth, right around the whole four miles of the track. And he, he got that, a thing was fine. And he gave it um, another little meal, get meal of himself. Then he put it back in his mouth. Like that. And he, he bathed it in sound. I am. I am. I am. 
and then stuffed it between the flanges of a lukewarm radiator for the period of one lunar month. <laughs> he then, he then uh, circumcised himself with heated, sharpened cake tongs, inserting into the wound slivers and shards of desiccated mouse pellet. <laughs> a few weeks later, when his enterprise had settled down, he showed us the result. <laughs> and it certainly had given it a handsome, toasted appearance. <laughs> Neville was the kind of guy you listened to. <laughs> Neville informed us that the way we were speaking pigeon was wrong. Anyway, the way we were speaking pigeon was utterly nothing to do with the way they speak it, um, for example, in Malakula, right? In Malakula, they've got a whole different mode, a whole different mode of speaking, right? Uh, what you need to do, you need to go on a journey now uh, into your mouths, okay? Uh, stick your tongues behind your teeth. All right, I might be on the top set if you've got, if you're lucky enough to present it. And for a tongue backwards. You'll be crossing over a little ridge. You'll be crossing the ridge there. That is called the alveolar ridge. The alveolar ridge. All right, back up there, and you're on the hard palate. Right, the bony bit. Hard palate, all right? <laughs> and you're in the soft palate. That soft stuff's a soft palate. Those are the palatine arches. That's the uvula there. Palatine arches. Uvula. Okay. Well, now, in British speech, what we are using as our sounding board is the hard palate. And by sounding board, I mean exactly this. Right? If you were to get some strings and pull them and give them a bit of a pluck, you would get a little bit of a thwacky noise, but it's not until, you know, you've got a sounding board, a box, a sounding box, ideally, you know, like a guitar box, a cello box, or something like that, that you're going to get the real sounds. And uh, that's our sounding board, our hard palate. In Britain, we don't use the soft palate. That's for French people. <laughs> okay? Now, I, I now want you to hum. I want everyone to hum. Now, when you hum, notice that your lips are vibrating. Nothing clever about that, right? They will. Notice that your nose is vibrating. You can make it vibrate even more. You can make it vibrate so you'll get a little tickle in it. Now make your Adam's apple vibrate. It will. It already was, but you can go for it now. Williams, you spent hours doing this. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm now going to get you to vibrate something which few people in Britain have ever thought of vibrating. <laughs> this is your ears. Yeah? Do look around when we try this exercise. The statistic is this, that one in a thousand, the ears are going to flap a bit. So like, oh, Watch around, right, see if this happens. But really what I mean by vibrating your ears is vibrating the tubings in there, the inner. And, 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 and stuff that, and it'll tickle. Maybe you've got to tickle in the nose, it's going to tickle like that in the ears if you get it right. And to get that, you've got to. Here's, here's a way in. You kind of impersonate a, an insect. You put your tongue on your alveolar ridges. Tongues on alveolar ridges, please. And. You can done that. Try and get it right. Try to get your ears to tickle. You can done it up and you can get in the. Oh, she's done. <laughs> Good. Now we're now moving you into the Malakulan mode of talking, right? Okay? Because they don't use the hard palate as their sounding board. This is the whole bit, right? They're using the cranium. It's something like something like a trachaic resonance is what they're using. Right? And it's worth knowing this. I mean, a lot of people do this. Like most Melanesians do it. Samoans, Maoris, Aboriginals. That's how they get their voices. I mean, all the, you know, so instead of going, you, me, too, fella, go puff and one woody, long, long, will, will house. Right? And it, you, me, too, fella, go puff and one woody. 
And yet ears are tickling. The Malagolans and the Maoris and Go, they never thought otherwise than this. That, that when you speak, your ears should tickle. They never thought otherwise. Sometimes people go, oh dear, oh dear, you know. And they go, dear, oh dear. They say, well, what about poor deaf Malagolans then? You know, they won't, they won't be able to lip read. If you do, you do, you know, they do, don't have to worry. There aren't any deaf Malagolans. Here, especially in Britain, we get a, we get a lot of deafness. And that's because we, we speak at the front, only using that as our sounding board. Right? Uh, uh, got a hell of a build-up of earwax. They don't get any. They I mean, Neville said um, earwax is unknown in Malacca. You know, if you collect enough of it, and he said, you know, I don't mean a lot. You know, about the size of a big rub pot. He said, it'd be valuable there, you'd be able to swap it for a pig or something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, we adopted the Malakulan mode, naturally, as our secret language then. Once you've done that, you're really, really almost that ventriloquism, do you see? And they, they, there used to be an advert in the Hotspur comic. Boys, 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 learn to throw your voice! Fool your teacher, policemen, peddlers. All that half a crown it was, two and six, uh, and you'd get this ventrilo gadget and a 32-page booklet on how to be a ventriloquist. Naturally, we sent off. The ventrilo gadget wasn't actually a lot of excitement. What it was, I think, um, and I said, well, after it had been around a few people, it was no excitement. It, but it was kind of, I think, a, uh, a Punch and Judy man swazzle. There's a way of making a punch voice where, but uh, it's a sort of whistly thing. I'm probably that's what it was. But the 32 page booklet, oh, what a treasure! And the library caught fire, oh, that's, a, that's the thing it's saying. <laughs> this really told us some things, it told us, you know, like where else to look and all. From the 32 page booklet, we learn this that the greatest ventriloquists in the world today are the Eskimos, the Zulus, and the Maoris. That the very first ventriloquist ever, whose name we know, is 4,500 years ago, and it was a pygmy. And his name was Bezo. And he was um, owned by a, uh, an ancient Egyptian pharaoh. And it still exists, the letter that they... Pharaoh wrote. The Pharaoh wrote this letter when he was um, nine years old. He was already Pharaoh, I believe. Right? And he's writing this letter to Harkhoof, a military expansionist in the sixth dynasty of the Pharaohs. He writes, Come north to the palace at once. Make haste and bring with you the funny pygmy whom you brought from the land of the horizon dwellers who does the dances of the gods. When he goes with you into the ship, place worthy men around him on deck, lest he fall into the water. When he sleeps, surround him with worthy men. In his tent, inspect him ten times a night. My majesty wishes to see this funny pygmy, more than all the gems and treasures of the minelands. Sorry. Anyway, technically, what... Um, you want to know about it. the Bezo incident? Was so popular in ancient Egypt that he became a god, the god Best, B-E-S, and so that figure there is actually, is actually of the um, of the god form of it. If you start to get interested in ancient Egyptian art, you'll know that everything pretty much is in profile. Except sometimes there's a little fella looking at you. That's Bezo or, or Best, the god form that comes later. Uh, but um, if you really want to know the proper terms for things, he was not a ventriloquist. He was a gastromancer. That was the uh, form that uh, ventriloquism had in ancient Egypt. And it's, um, it's, quite, it's quite lovely. It, ancient Egyptians, first of all, they, like, like we think, oh, I, I think, at least I think we think, I don't know what we think, I don't know, but I think that what we think is that spirits, you know what I mean? Spirits, if they exist at all, are kind of there, right? Well, the ancient Egyptians knew where they were. They're down there, and they're all down there. Whatever they are, they're down there. And um, if you moved um, into a moved house, right? Obviously, in this house, there's going to be spirits that are there, spirits of departed ones, you know, all kinds of that, demons, fairies, all kinds of stuff. Well, you want to know what's in there, don't you? So what you do is you call in the gastromancer. 
And the gastroman says, we're coming. I kind of had this kind of walk, the gastromancers, right? And they're very, very sensitive. Very, very sensitive in their bodies. And they can, they can sense any emanations coming up, right? And then if they've got one, then they can do your new stomach, you see? So you'd have to put your head to hear, to hear what you've got. You put your head to my stomach, you see? <laughs> and then they can chat to you, you see, and you can see whether you liked it or not. If you liked it, no problem, you got it back. Then. If you didn't want it, you go unless it's not fucked around. Therefore, it was like Egyptian housewarming. It was like a regular thing. And um, gastromancy continues. I mean, gastromancy was certainly um, current in Britain up to. Uh, 1840 or something, because Henry Mayhew visited the old gastromancer of Peckham and <laughs> explained um, his workload. <laughs> Been a great man. Uh, and this turns are quite intriguing. He says, um, the whole enterprise is your bumbo, these are your cakes. <laughs> Between your cakes is the binky. Just up at the binky is the tush or patootie, also known as the grumper. And it is the grumper that does the dowsing. The tricksy bit of uploading the spirit of a departed one demon fairy, etc., is done by backdoor trumpet inhale. <laughs> Shuffle, cat pipe, up <laughs> and worker up the loon pipe, well clear of the labonza. <laughs> Keep her sweet and by and by she'll talk. Keep her sweet mind, because a narky sprite will prompt a beef tea blowback. <laughs> <laughs> it was gastromancy mainly which tickled us um, at school. <laughs> um, I mean, we got into everything. And all that. And, and into, into the, 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 there's a form of ventriloquism that's really, really close range. It's um, Funny enough, it's close range with people, but it's called distant ventriloquism. And it's where you try and do the voice of somebody half a mile away. You know, that was... <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, to really get those little voices, what you have to do is you have to um, imagine or really feel that you're picking up a weight that's far too heavy for you. You go... Older people, you can skip that bit. You're better just keeping with the dummy. Um, <laughs> right, so uh, let's grab with it. Whether it's gastromancy, ubiquitarism, <clears throat> or polyphony, um, is the way you want to go. <clears throat> you've, got to, you've got to have some ability. I mean, Edgar Bergen, the great, he did have some ability at not moving his lips. So let's, um, let's launch into that, <clears throat> uh, how to do it. Now, um, Neville's sister Nina, when she got a little bit older, when she was about seven or eight, she was a, she was a really, really good ventriloquist, that little girl. And um, she came up with a sentence which hits every difficulty in the book for the ventriloquist. Like, vis up is moving your lips, I'm talking about. Because actually most of the letters of the alphabet you can say really quite easily without moving your lips, but some are killers to attempt. <clears throat> so try and learn this sentence now. <laughs> Nina's little sentence, a test. Who dared to put wet fruit bat turd in our dead mummy's bed? Was that you, Verity? <laughs> should be able to say who dared to without moving their lips. There's nothing difficult here. No difficulty with it at all. Who dared to? Everyone, who dared to? It's not easy. Put. Put. Who dared to? Put. Right, and that's it's what's called a labial plosive. It's a lip explosion. Who dared to? Put. What you have to have is um, a letter substitute. Here's a good one. A K. 
Now here's how you're making a K usually, right? You hump your tongue at the back and it, the, the hump of the tongue hits the back of the hard palate. K, right? What I want you to do is to attempt to hump the tongue into the French section, into the soft <laughs> And then send the noise through your nose, right? Because the soft section will give you a kind of lippy sound. <laughs> 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 Go easy, go easy, yeah. Who, who dared to put? Who dared to put? Who dared to put? Tell this. Who dared to put? Have a shot. Who dared to put? Wet, wet. Notice lips on that. Wet, right? What, what, what? The sound, what? The phoning, what, what? Right? Imagine that it's spelt, that little sound. H U H hyphen double O. Like, huh, ooh, huh, ooh. So instead of going, wah, you go, huh, ooh. Fruit, fruit, right, fruit. That's easy. It's just a TH, right? It's a TH, but don't stick your tongue through your teeth when you say the TH. No necessity to do that. Bat, bat, no, what you want is a G though, but in the, in the, in the soft bed if you can do it, through the nose. Who dares to cook? Who dares to cook? Turd is easy. Turd in our dead. Easy, on holiday there. Who dares to cook? Who Mummy, mummy, not easy. Mummy, mummy, you want the NG sound of singing. Who did the cook? 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 Who did the Here's a tip, if you want to be practising this, but don't want to, you know, call too much attention to yourself, <laughs> all you want to do is go to Wilford. <laughs> okay, well, okay, once through now, once we're through, do your best not to move your lips, remembering all your substitutes. <laughs> say going through a wall, I don't mean like a brick wall or something like that, I talk about a wall in your head. I assume we're born with it, and I would imagine everyone here has got one probably intact. Right? They're a wall. There's a wall in your mind, in your brain, in your head or something, right? And you can bust the thing. And it's quite interesting if you do if you do bust it down. It's quite a palaver to do so, and I'll tell you how it works. But you'll see that you see that actually pretty much everything I'm to say tonight actually has to do with ventriloquism. You can't imagine. Oh, I see what he's doing. Yeah. And I'm going through the wall now. Just trust me. Now, uh, I'm going to do. I've been through the wall twice, as a matter of fact. But I'm only going to deal tonight with the first occasion, which is in the Hainault Forest Sea Scout Hut. Um, the summer term of 1955, and the way the way it came about was this: we got we got interested um, in earth speech a little bit. We were earth speech. Some kid, people called it proton or prototan. What are we really talking about is the very first, the very first speech that mankind would have had or did have, right? The very first, right? There's got to have been, right? The first geezers who... What was that like? That's a speech. What was the first word? And that was an interest. There was also um, a hero we had, um, some long ago prince, who had the theory but if you got hold of little kids, very little kids is what he meant, you know, before they're talking or anything, get them off their mums and dads, right? Because they mustn't see any, they mustn't have any adult company now. What we're going to do is put them all together, a whole bunch of them together, you know, we're not going to be cruel, but we are going to wall them up. And uh, they're going to have a trough of milk and buttons thrown in and all that. And, but his theory was that if they just grew up together like that, 
they would grow up naturally speaking Hebrew. <laughs> he, had a, he had a shot at it. Regrettably, that didn't happen. Uh, what, what happened was they all died. But he, he was a hero, because I mean, that was terrific, you know. They, they had enough to have a shot at it. And, but most of all, we were inspired by the concept of the lost vowel. And you don't hear a lot about the lost vowel these days. And I was hunting to find some reference to it somewhere. So I streamed it. And I came across it. It's in this, if you want to read a little bit about the lost vowel. Uh, um, this, this is a uh, Georges Perec's novel called in the original La Disparition. Yeah? And it's um, a whole novel that Georges Perec wrote without ever using the letter E. He used only words that don't contain the letter E. Even something that is remarkable is Gilbert Adair has translated it into, uh, into English without using any word that contains the letter E. Uh, this kind of writing or talking, if you can do it, is called lipogrammatic or lipography. It's writing under a constraint. And reading it is weird. I mean, they manage it, you see. But I mean, it's, it's like, that makes you walk weird while you're reading it. <laughs> oh, like the E is well. It's incredible. Right? I mean, and, and what happens in the original French um, uh, uh, thing is that um, they're in a library and they t start taking out famous bits of French literature. And uh, but they're all di different now. They're all got... E-less words, right? I don't mean they cut the E out, they find alternative words, right? And obviously Gilbert Adair, I reckon, they wouldn't be famous enough to ask those French ones. So he's got other, other stuff, and he's, um, he's, he's, I don't know what you call it, transmoded the whole of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, which contains 640 E's, right? <laughs> I just thought we'd stop there, because when somebody does something as brilliant as this, it makes me cry a bit. Anyway, at the back of it, right, there's, there's stuff. The E's are back for the last two pages, and there's a the kind of stuff here that the chat, who's just gone through a whole E-list novel, would enjoy to read. And here's a bit here, and it's about the unknown vowel. The Unknown Vowel is by Jean Tardier, I see. The Unknown, the Unknown Vowel. I've studied the phonemes of every language, past and present. I've followed, followed vocalic sounds on their secular journeys. I have hearkened across the ages to the roar of the A, the whistle of the I, the bleat of the E, the hoot of the U, and the snores of the O. And yet I realise that I still await, still anticipate the Unknown Vowel. The vowel of vowels that will contain all others, that will solve all problems. That will take all of a man's breath to pronounce by a monstrous distension of the jaws, as though combining in a single cry the yawn of boredom, the howl of hunger, the moan of love, and the rattle of death. When I have found it, creation itself will be swallowed up and nothing will remain, gentlemen. Nothing but the unknown vowel. And that was our intention in the Hainaut Forest Sea Scout hut. Right? We were going to find the lost vowel, the unknown vowel, and wind up the universe. Finish the ratchet thing off. Right? Now, there was more turned up for this do than we'd um, anticipated. Some had clearly come to mock. I mean, like, for example, we had a whole of the first 11 cricket team had come. <laughs> Fortunately, we had, who turned up was Ralph Plashwick, that's uh, Neville Plashwick's father, you know, and you know, an espionage chap, and he was absolutely terrific, Ralph. And he arrived in, um, what you call a Ruritanian tea cone, is it? <laughs> and uh, Ralph gave, gave a little talk about some so-called primitive peoples and how they cleanse themselves with sound. It turns out, with inner sound, you can... Uh, with inner sound, you can, you can get any organ, any bone, any part of you to vibrate. Right? Like you can vibrate away tumours and all kinds of illnesses if you can find your inner sounds, right? It kind of goes like that.
this round my ears, I'll, I'll tell you, because if you get to try this when you get home, you need a partner, right? Go hunting your inner cells out for your health. I'm trying to tell you how to live longer here. Now, if you've got a partner, you're both hunting for your inner sounds, it can come that the, um, the sounds, well, I don't know what happens, coalesce or something, and you get, it's like happens in the air. I mean, and it's objective, everyone hears it. You get like a glissandy of bells. Anyway, it's just what the doctor ordered, this one. Like Ralph's lecture, so we now had 30 geezers in the scout hut. Well, my man, there's nothing else you want to be doing once you get going, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and people look really mad, you know, like a nightmare. <laughs> 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 so this was kind of a hunt for the unknown vowel, a damn good hunt it was. Yeah. As you see, we didn't find it. Then <laughs> <laughs> we're going to move up. Earth speech now. Well, I mean, where, where actually, you know, in all the possibilities, did, uh, were they producing these, that first language? It might have been a clicking one. <laughs> what you find out quite quickly is that you can communicate, you know, some simple desire. You can communicate uh, through gibberish, but I wouldn't call that a language. If you're going to find any kind of language, you're going to have to go on some time, some hours. But I was saying it must be about the fifth or sixth hour. We'd found a language. Found a language. Was it Earth speech? I should not think so. But it was kind of an agreement. You know, it's extraordinary. And that's when the debates began. But I don't know, but what are these debates about? Well, I don't know. Like, um, it seems to me that what we were debating was, you know how in the whole universe there are, given the whole universe, there are still more things which don't exist than which do exist. Twas of them, I think, we spoke. You know, and maybe there was a possibility that this practice that we wandered into, there was some likelihood we might invoke one or two of these so far, so far absent things in the middle. And it's going to be shortly, if you do, if you follow my instruction, that people will start going through the wall, through their walls. Yeah, you see what I mean? And you can tell. You can tell when they've gone through the wall, and you can tell when you've gone through the wall. Because when you've gone through the wall, everything is funny. And I don't mean just a few things, I mean everything, everything is funny. <laughs> you've gone through the wall. And I don't mean just passably amusing, I mean like, you funny that might kill you, that <laughs> And you're aware how, how utterly arbitrary everything is, everything. It is arbitrary. Nothing has to be like this. Also, like, you can see that nothing would be likely, absolutely nothing at all, it's kind of like, but that this should be this. I mean, this is a very weird kind of this, isn't it? That is this. That is this. Uh, I mean, the, the reason, when I got through the wall, everyone had their own story about how they got through the wall, you know, they all seemed to be logical in that kind of way. What had happened to me was I saw that little Nina Plashwick, the little kid, you know, she'd been left uh, with us by her dad, Ralph Plashwick, little Nina. She'd be aged about four and three quarters. And I saw that she was laughing dangerously. You know, and they awful thought of, you know, Ralph Blashwick finding his daughter died of laughing, you know. I thought I'd better go do something. But when I got over to Helbert, I thought of Ralph Blashwick finding his daughter dead of laughter. I thought it was so funny. And I was laughing with his hands and, you know, through the wall. through the wall, you know, in an awful, painful way. Things become incredibly clear that weren't before. You know what I mean? Like, it was clear to me, for example, that we are not, we are not descended from apes. We're descended from a bald-headed rat. This is real long ago, time of the dinosaurs, Plasticine period, a bald-headed rat. And a bald-headed rat is conscious that rat, it knows, and it knows, and it knows, and it's going to evolve several ways. It's going to evolve into the bear, the wolf, the pig, the lemur, the monkey ape, and us. And as bald-headed rats, we wiped out the dinosaurs by scabbering up them and pooing in their ears. <laughs> and, at work, 
consciousness is. It's simply a degree of complexity and complication sufficient to make the possessor aware that it has importance, purpose and meaning. But insufficiently complex for it to be able to work out what this purpose and meaning is. <laughs> Which, if you're through the board, is perfectly clear. We are here for the entertainment of depraved gods. But importance prevents us from seeing that. Importance is the spine and the structure of the human comedy. Importance. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, only the pygmies, only the pygmies have, I think, the culture of importance, avoidance, of non-importance, you know, because their culture hasn't changed for 15,000 years. They probably, they come from a much clearer, kindlier, bald-headed mouse line. They never <laughs> included in any dinosaur ears, I don't know. So, I mean, possibly, possibly are sentimentalising me. <laughs> the damn hands of the elephant. Anyway, <laughs> I was saying to the pygmies compost group. <laughs> now, if you imagine now I've got pretty much 30 people. <laughs> How come the sadness comes in? <laughs> it's because it's okay when you're through the wall. It's terrific on the other side of the wall. That's really the best place to be. But you're kind of aware, seeks in an awareness of that poor bugger on the other side of the wall, you know. <laughs> and it became the form to laugh on one side of your face and weep on the other. <laughs> and how close together can you get them? Can you do both at once? <laughs> you can. You can. It's only for an instant. It's a one-off instant of time. You can do it. <laughs> what happens though, when you get them together, is, it's, is you forget the basics. You forget how to pump blood. Yeah, <laughs> it comes back to you. And as you go as you go through what kind of coming back I suppose you'd call it, right? You leave all the old shit behind. I mean what I mean is you have a personal evacuation. Some what a stuff is gonna come through every orifice you've got at that moment. And then you're, and then you're through. So maybe it's important what you see as you come through. I was uh, fortunate what I saw was the brilliant four and three quarter year old face of little Nina Plattis. <laughs> And going through the wall makes it interesting getting home because they're not going to let you on the buses. <laughs> when I got home, it was really quite late and I, I crept in. But my smell woke my father. <laughs> there was a... There's another thing that we didn't hold with much at school and that was um, having to go and cheer the first 11s on, you know, with a visiting team came. But one time it was quite... Uh, quite good, one Wednesday afternoon. And that was, it followed the, the coming of the seagulls. Seagulls had started to fly all over inland Essex, herds and flocks of them. And uh, Neville had caught a couple with um, sardine-baited fish lines dangling from a box kite. And for a lad in his very early teens, he really was an accomplished vivisectionist. His inquiry into these birds led him to declare that seagulls can't fart. <laughs> so when we headed off down to the match to cheer on our first 11 cricket team, we had with us some bread, but it wasn't regular bread. I don't know what he'd done to it. Bicarbonate of soda, is it? Something like that was in the bread, right? And there we were, and there's, there's our, our team. Our team was fielding, right? And then, and then we see the seagulls. Here come the seagulls, right? And there's kind of earth speech carrying on around the pitch. Quite subtle, but we were aware that our lads had heard it. Flash it with me, and slinging some bread. They're really good at catching bread in the air, seagull. So <laughs> the first, the first of these seagulls, 
blasts apart in mid-air! You know, that's a fishy, feathery, mucker. And this one right now, he got his building down, he was building down here. Sea dog blew up right And he had an evacuation. And his evacuation brought in another one over there. It was like a team going down like dominoes. Quite a domino effect, actually. You know, and then suddenly risible, given the white stuff that you have to wear for them. Um, cricket. There was, a, there was an inquiry. <laughs> and um, the whole school had to be assembled. And the headmaster complained of an outbreak of Montanism at Wednesday's match. And nobody, not even a Plashwitz, had heard of the word Montanism. First of all, it was extraordinary that there was a word for what we'd done. <laughs> there would actually be 44 years until I actually heard exactly what Montanism is. Anyway, there you go. Anyway, as a result of Montanism, the outbreak of Montanism, the following got banned in our school. Um, the uh, the speaking of pigeon, or any other voodoo language. <laughs> All ventriloquial studies had to cease. Sir, yes. Does that include gastromancy? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And glossolalia, or speaking in tongues. Yes, flash with. Sir, but glossolalia, or the gift of tongues, could mean that the Holy Ghost is with us. <laughs> and Master said he'd risk it. <laughs> the speaker requests uh, an interval. <laughs> Ken Campbell, The Seekers Podcast, was produced and presented by Daisy Campbell and David Bramwell, with kind permission from the Ken Campbell Estate. Music was by Horton Jupiter. It was funded by Arts Council England.